It's like the Infinity War of uh, research papers. I haven't seen the movie. I'm told it's about population ethics, so I'm excited. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Sarah Cliff, and also remote live from New York City, we have Dylan Matthews with us today. Hi, Dylan. Hi. Hey, we brought Dylan on because we want to talk about jobs guarantee, which has been a burning up wonky Twitter uh, for the past week or two. Uh, we've also got a, a blockbuster research paper with some some real emotional highs and lows, uh, in my opinion. It's going to be great. It's um, going to be real good. It's a, well, it's kind of sad. But it's happy, it's sad. You'll cry, you'll laugh. It'll be exactly. quite the research. But before that, I want to get into the jobs guarantee. Uh, Dylan's done some great stuff on this. And I mean, I think an obvious question here is like, why do we suddenly have Three sort of prominent Democratic senators, uh, Cory Booker, Kristen Gillibrand, Bernie Sanders, in different ways, talking about the idea that the government should guarantee that everybody who, who wants to get a job should get a job. And part of it, I mean, I think comes down to politics. I mean, candidates for office have always talked about jobs. Jobs are good. Jobs are popular. But some polling was done recently by Civis Analytics, which is a big Democratic Party data firm. And it it asked the question of uh, whether you would favor Congress passing a law that would put a 5% income tax on everyone who makes over $200,000 a year, and the money would be used to ensure that the government can give a job to everybody who wants one. And it it polled really well, like 52-34. And it polled really well, even though the question was deliberately written. A lot of times people do advocacy polls with the question wording, like designed to make people say yes. Uh, This was the opposite. Like this was done, the poll specified that Democrats were proposing this. It specified that it would have a cost. And, and higher taxes, and people still still like the idea. And I think you see like a number of fictional presidents have toyed with this idea. It's uh, in Dave, the every man who becomes president uh, proposes a jobs guarantee. In House of Cards, there's a jobs guarantee program. And I think this is like an idea that sounds really good to people. Like we've talked a million times on the show about work requirements and like people not wanting to help the undeserving poor, but people really do want to help people who are like, man, I just like, I want to get a, get a job out there. But then there's also this policy community of people who've been working away on the, on the vision of, of a jobs guarantee associated with, with modern monetary theory. And Dylan, like, can you tell us like, what, what are these, these plans that are out there from CBPP and, and the Levy Institute? Yeah, so there's there have been a few communities of mostly sort of heterodox, a little out of of sort of mainstream economics folks uh, interested in this. The first, as you said, is around this group of economists who who subscribe to a theory called modern monetary theory, which it's complicated, and I'm I'm sure I, I can't do it justice in a, a sentence summary, but basically think the deficits are are really overemphasized. They're less of a binding constraint than you might think. And they think that the best way to manage the economy and make sure that you have enough demand for goods and stuff is for the government to act as an employer of last resort, for the, the government to have a public jobs program so that anyone who wants a job can, can get one. So that in economic downturns, you don't get an upsurge of unemployment because everyone who wants a job can go to the government and then they get money, which they can spend, which helps the economy recover. 
So this has been a thing in MMT circles going back at least 20 or 30 years. And the, the link of this to deficits, right, is sort of conventional thinking is, oh, giving everyone a job might be really expensive. MMT thinking, I would say, is that, no, the really the thing we can't afford is to have millions of people not doing anything. And that if you get them to do something, that is more productive than nothing and therefore more like affordable for society. Right. I think the, the way they think about it is MMT folks often say things like the, the government can't run out of money the way that like an arcade can't run out of tickets. Right. That that the government prints money. It's their thing. That what's actually scarce is resources to do productive things. And when you have unemployment, you almost by definition have productive people sitting around not doing productive things. And so the goal is to get them to be productive. And so this is their their plan for how to do that. Pavlina Antoneva, who's based at, at the Levy Institute at Bard, um, has written a lot about this. So has Stephanie Kelton, who's now at Stony Brook on Long Island and who has been an advisor to Bernie Sanders, which I think is, has been one reason this theory has gone from sort of a small community of, of academics uh, who, who didn't have much social cachet to being something within the mainstream of democratic politics that, that Bernie gave them a, a veneer of legitimacy that, that wasn't there before. And then you also have a community of economists from more of a racial justice tradition, uh, from more of a focus on reducing racial gaps in employment and wealth. Sandy Darity at, at Duke, uh, Derek Hamilton at, at New School have written a lot about jobs guarantees in that frame. And they were the ones who wrote the Center on Budgets job guarantee plan, which was one of the reasons that this has sort of taken off in recent months. And then tell us a little bit, because we're also seeing plans come out of Congress, too. I think Booker and Sanders both have their own plans. And so I hope you talk through like kind of like what's going on there. Right. So I think the order was uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, uh, in an interview with Sean McElway, who's a very outspoken Twitter leftist, who's uh, been very vocal and, and supportive of, of jobs guarantees. So he talked to her and she expressed support for the idea, but didn't have sort of a specific plan to make it happen. Cory Booker came out with the first legislation that I saw on this, which would set up a pilot program that you would you would pick about 15 communities, both rural and urban ones. So like his hometown of Newark might be one place. And then you you have a rural area in, uh, in say, West Virginia that's that's also has high employment. And you set this up, you evaluate it. You try to find control areas that are similar to the areas where you're doing it so you can see what effect this has. And so instead of going all in on this, this really dramatic way to refigure the American economy, you test it in a few places and see how it does. Bernie's bill, um, I don't know if there's bill text for his yet. I've read the actual text of, of Booker's bill and, and haven't seen text from, from Sanders. But Sanders wants to go in whole hog, um, as is his want. And so it's it's sort of instead of piloting it in a few areas, you just set up the program nationally and go for it. So I understand a jobs guarantee is the idea there are people who are sitting around who might be interested in working, but for some reason can't find work, um, who, you know, want to do something and that we would be better if these people were doing something productive, participating in the labor force that'd be, you know, there's, I think there's two separate arguments about that would be better for them. And we could argue about like whether that would be better for them and that'd be better for the economy. But I get a little stuck on both of them. And I'm curious still, and you've been writing on this, like when people talk about a jobs guarantee, do they frame it as this is what is 
good for these people or this is what would be good for the economy or like this is what would be good for the Democrats politically as like Matt was talking about with the polling. Like what's the driving argument that you hear from the people who are like pushing this at this particular moment? So you sometimes hear it pitched either as an alternative or or sort of in conjunction with a basic income, um, that they're both sort of utopian visions for for reimagining what the federal government does. And what you often hear from job guarantee advocates is people don't just want money, they want work. They want the dignity that comes with work. They want the feeling of being productive. They want to be connected uh, to a process and, and society greater than themselves. And so just giving them money doesn't satisfy that. And they really view it as is qualitatively different to offer everyone work rather than making people work and then not creating a situation where they can find it. Um, I think that would be their critique of work requirements of for Medicaid, for food stamps, uh, some of the welfare work requirements that, that came up in the 90s is that you put this expectation on people without creating uh, the opportunities for them to to go to work now that you are making them. And I think it's important to understand. I mean, I, I think part of what motivates people in the policy side of this, right, is that people don't like to talk about it this way because it's ugly. But like the way economic management works in the United States is that when the unemployment rate becomes too low, the Federal Reserve deliberately slows down economic growth to try to make the unemployment rate be higher in order to avoid there being too much inflation. But then at the same time, we like as a society have a scoldy attitude toward people who are out of work, right? So like one way to resolve this contradiction, I think like the mainstream way that we resolve this contradiction in America is to try to use a lot of obfuscatory rhetoric. And like you don't have Chairman Powell stand up at a press conference and say, the reason we raised interest rates this week is that we were afraid that too many people were finding work, right? Instead, there's like a lot of jargon and sort of like hiding of the ball that goes into it. But like another way would be to say, no, 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 like we should confront the reality that like the predominant tool of macroeconomic management in the United States today is to deliberately create a reserve pool of millions of unemployed people. And like that's really like deeply problematic and we ought to do things in a different way, right? What I think these plans get weird is that like that is a big revolutionary change that is being proposed, right? That like instead of the government working to guarantee that there will always be millions of unemployed people to keep inflation down, the government's going to try to guarantee that everybody be employed all the time. These plans then like also add in like three or four other radical changes, right? So like in the Levy Institute plan, it's not just that there's going to be a universal employment scheme, but like all the jobs are going to be in the public sector. It's not subsidization of private employment. All the jobs are going to pay $15 an hour, which is like much higher than the many existing salaries. Um, everybody is going to have health insurance, which is not the way employment works currently. And also the jobs are not supposed to like compete with or overlap with existing civil service jobs. And there's reasons for all of that, right? And you can get, if you get into like, arguing on Twitter with leftists, you'll get the like, 
what's wrong? Like, why do you hate people having good paying jobs? And like, I don't, I don't hate people having good paying jobs. I I don't love unemployment, but it's like, I think it's problematic to just like try to bundle everything you might possibly want out of the world into one program and like insist that it all go together. Like there's a really real question as to whether the government could like set up shops in which people come through the door and they are given jobs of last resort and then the jobs of last resort that the government provides are like reasonably honestly administered and like it seems okay and the money isn't all just being stolen. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but like it's a it's an open question, right? Like we haven't done it. And then to say that you're going to like on top of that put like three or four other like contentious radical changes to the economy is like it makes for an interesting book, but to me, like, not a great political agenda. You know, a lot of the policy ideas we talk about for the United States, you know, things like paid leave, universal health care coverage, like, are things that we see in other countries, that we see Scandinavian countries, Canada doing them, and we feel like, hey, you know, why not import that idea? Whereas I think there are a few examples of job guarantee. I know, Dylan, you've written about some of the research from India, but it it does not seem to be the policy tool of choice um, for the things that job guarantee advocates want to accomplish when you look at, you know, kind of our peer countries abroad. But one thing I want to go back to, because this is something I've been thinking about getting, you know, ready for this conversation, is this idea that comes up about this, like, sense of identity and value from work. And this is something I was reading Bryce Covert's um, Case for a Job Guarantee in the New Republic, where she writes that Americans overwhelmingly want to work. Most people say that they get a sense of identity from their job, which links to a Gallup poll on this. And I actually found the numbers kind of a, a letdown from how they were framed. So this is a Gallup poll. So it finds the top line is that 55% of workers get a sense of identity from their job. But when you break that down a little bit, it's really a lot of college graduates who are getting a sense of identity from their job. Um, 70% of college graduates say they have a sense of identity versus 29% who say that's just what you do. When you look at people who didn't graduate college, you know, the majority flips. 45% say they get a sense of identity. 51 say it's just what you do. Or if you look at a kind of low-income um, worker, you see the same kind of split. 43% identity, 52%. It's just what you do. And this is one of the things that I'm a little kind of skeptical, even thinking about before we get to the details of like how would a policy like this work is whether this is this notion that a job is something that's going to give people a sense of identity and dignity is is actually true of the type of people who would be participating in a jobs guarantee program and like what what we expect of those people because I think there are a lot of jobs and like even our jobs as reporter which I think we'd all probably like fit in the sense of identity like we identify as journalists who you know write things on our computer and the internet but like there's some parts where it's like this is just what I do when I have to do like certain trainings at Vox Media or there's like boring paperwork or stories I don't really feel like Doing Do expenses. Doing expenses is a good example. But there's some, you know, like there's entire movies like Office Space that are just about the fact like aren't jobs terrible and unproductive. And I I don't know. I just question the underpinning of this whole push that the type of jobs that would be created are the ones that would kind of create this sense of identity and purpose and whether we're asking kind of too much of uh, of what a workplace is going to do for for people in this situation. 
Yeah, I think the motivating research there is that there's a lot of sort of research on subjective well-being and, and even just sort of like medical conditions that suggest that unemployment is one of the very, very worst things that could happen to you. That the people who go through a spell of unemployment report significantly worse well-being for, for years afterwards. Long-term unemployment is, is really terrible for you. Suicide rates, early mortality goes up. It's It's a significant social cost. I think the issue is that that's all evidence we have from a world in which work is not universal and is stigmatized. Right. Well, and this is where I actually think that the program design details matter a great deal. And you, I think you can't separate like the conceptual issue that Sarah put on the table with the program design questions. And I think that the the people from these like lefty organizations are actually really getting this wrong, right? That to the extent that jobs are a source of meaning in people's lives, which I think is clearly they are for some people but not for other people, if the way your job guarantee works is that a person who doesn't have a job can go to the job guarantee office and they are then assigned some kind of semi-meaningless task in the like job guarantee department and you have like a little name tag that's like you know, like Illinois Department of Guaranteed Jobs, and you're doing something like you're cleaning city parks or, you know, something that's useful but that, like, society can can do without. That's clearly going to be in the category of the kind of job that doesn't give people the, like, sense of meaning and identity because it's going to be siloed off from all the other kinds of work, right? I mean, it's going to be the equivalent, the jobs equivalent of having a snap card, right? Which, I mean, people people like that they get nutrition assistance benefits um, and people who uh, w- would appreciate the money that would come with a jobs guarantee job. But you would be still marked out as like the person on the jobs guarantee and the jobs would have to be relatively basic, relatively low skill kind of work. What I said in in my piece about this is that I think we should take the idea of guaranteed work seriously rather than literally and that just like the government should make a harder effort to get people into jobs than it has, right? That like one of the legacies of the Great Depression and Nazism and the Cold War and all that stuff was like for several decades, governments in the West were like, really, really, really paranoid about mass unemployment. They thought that going through another spell of mass unemployment would be a huge social catastrophe and they were determined to not make it happen. And the employment to population ratio kind of just like steadily rose for decades and decades in the United States. More recently, like policymakers have not taken that view. And so we've seen the share of people who have jobs kind of falling sort of steadily. And I think, you know, there's a good case that we should we should turn that around. And, you know, you can do that with monetary policy. You can do that with fiscal policy. There's there's a lot of things you can do. But then the role of direct sort of government-created jobs programs, it seems to me, should be for specific vulnerable populations, right? We're like a, like a, a classic case of this is we know at any given time there's like a lot of people who are in prison, 
right? And then most of them get out of prison at some point. And if we ask, like, as a society, like, what do we want somebody to do when they're no longer in prison? I think what we want them to do is, like, go get a job. But we don't really do very much to facilitate that happening. And it seems like a really obvious sort of case for, like, there should be a program for this. There should be a program for people who graduate high school in good standing but aren't going to college. Like, what do we, we want people like that to go to work, but like, what are we doing to help them get work? It, it seems like often not very much. Yeah, I think sometimes this debate is sort of frustratingly apart from our actual experience with subsidized work programs, which to your point, most of the time when, when the U.S. has tried subsidized work, it's not in the context of, of sort of a, a broad population that sometimes like during uh, the Great Recession, part of the stimulus involved like a ramp up of, of public jobs. But most of the time, it's people coming out of prison. It's disabled people uh, who might want to uh, give work a shot and, and might prefer work to, to getting disability benefits. Um, it's single mothers uh, who are full-time caregivers. I mean, disability um, is a really good case here, right? Because like you might have been working, then developed a medical condition that prevents you from doing the job that you were doing before. And like in principle, you would like to do something else, but like that could be challenging. Right. Right. And so like the government might try to help in that situation. Right. And, and help you get new skills. Like maybe you were a coal miner and you you developed a back injury so that you can't mine coal anymore and you want to be a medical assistant and do insurance filing, uh, claims filing. And then like the government will give you some training to do that. And then you go get a job doing that, which you are not like uh, physically prevented from doing. Like that seems like a perfectly good use case. There's a really good review of experiments that have been done, like actual randomized experiments um, that a team at Georgetown put together. And the federal government has invested a lot, like through HHS, through the Department of Labor, uh, through the Social Security Administration, in trying to figure out ways to help people in vulnerable groups transition back into employment. And there's some models that seem to work that have been been tried throughout the decades. But not all of them do. Like there was a, a recent bevy of, of transitional work programs specifically for ex-prisoners, none of which found really significant earnings or employment impacts. The, you got a subsidized job, you worked in that, then the subsidy went away and you stopped working. And I think the takeaway from that and the author's takeaway is not we should not try to help these people get jobs like we should. And there are some techniques that are more promising than others. My takeaway is more like it's really, really hard. That like these people are not working for a reason. It's and that there there are really deep barriers that are keeping them from working related to societal stigma and prejudice, denial of skills and a lack of opportunities to develop skills. And like we should address those things, but designing the program is really, really tough. And it makes me concerned when a lot of the job guarantee discussion sort of hand waves away details about how to design the program and sort of assumes that that these people will get public jobs and, and we can figure out how to do that rapidly and easily. And specifically, the, the, the hand-waving takes place, I think, in the major proposals I've seen by sort of punting the decision to state and local governments, right? It's like people know that they can't actually write down in detail how you're going to create a programs that get useful work for a large but also very heterogeneous group of hard-to-employ people. So what they say is like, well, we're going to have state and local governments do it. But A, like state and local governments don't necessarily know how to solve unsolvable problems. And also like the reality is like 
imagine to yourself not like what you, well-meaning liberal, think a jobs guarantee program should be, but imagine what the governor of Mississippi is going to do with like a jobs guarantee slush fund, right? And like how how much dignity is there going to be in the in the work that's created there, right? Now, sometimes like it's the best you can do. Like there's there's a reason we have a lot of state federal partnership programs in in the United States, but you know. Again, like that is an implementation detail, right? If you're saying the way I'm going to work out these details is by not working them out and just sort of outsourcing the thinking to local elected officials, like you're going to get what you get. One thing I think through there and just like stepping back from this, I feel like jobs guarantee sounds very exciting and big and like this huge program that I I think does appeal to that kind of polling. But, you know, at the same time, I wonder, like you were talking about Fed policy, Matt, about other roads to accomplishing similar things that might work a little better, but just like sound a lot less like sexy policy wise. Like I always think of the difference between like all payer rate setting, which sounds very boring and single payer universal healthcare, which sounds like big and exciting and disruptive. And like the parallel I see here is you have jobs guarantee or you have something like a massive expansion of the earned income tax credit. So I could think through like, um, one area that comes up in a lot of these jobs guarantee discussions is childcare. That's an area where it seems like we need more workers. There's a lack of affordable childcare. What if we got more people working in that space? Now, one thing you could do is open a bunch of subsidized childcare centers. You could open a bunch of government childcare centers, but I don't know if people want to send their children to like childcare center of last resort, like knowing that this person has a guaranteed job of some level. And I think, Dylan, you've cited some research that suggests that people who are put into like a guaranteed government job have trouble transitioning in the private market. But you could also see with... Um, it's a childcare center that's also a job of last resort for ex-cons. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if that's really not, where. Like, like when I think I've been touring yeah. child care facilities lately and I don't think I would go to that one. And I mean, like even beyond that issue, you could see if you're going to have these wage guarantees and benefit guarantees that actually doing the opposite of, you know, raising the price of child care as the private centers have to compete the flip side that seems like, and like you guys can tell me something I'm missing here, but an easier way to get to that is just some kind of like Ro Khanna's proposal to expand the earned income tax credit that is going to give a greater incentive for someone to think about doing some kind of work, maybe childcare, because they're going to get a much bigger tax credit back. So, I mean, earned income tax credit is not a job guarantee, but it feels like it pushes in a very similar direction without, and in a kind of known direction, that we have a lot of research, we've been doing the earned income tax credit for a while in a way that a job guarantee wouldn't necessarily move us Right, so I think you're hitting on something really important, which is that a job guarantee is, is appealing both because it employs all these people and because it sets up new services that people want and new government actions that people want. That like, in addition to wanting everyone to have a job, most of these advocates think we should have universal child care. They think we should have like a, a new green economy based on renewable fuels. They think we should have more transit and, and more trains. So it's natural to think we have this new pool of workers and we have all this stuff that we want to do. So let's just get the workers to do the stuff. But a lot of these are actually like really hard skilled professions. Like child care is, is a skilled job that like in other countries like France, you need to go to to education school to learn early childhood education to do that kind of teaching and, and supervision. And like maybe we don't need something quite like that, but you do want some training. 
it's really appealing to think, well, we have all these millions of workers, and so we're going to fuel the whole country based on solar panels. But like, if I took an employer of last resort job in the like green core, and someone was like, all right, Dylan, first day, you should like put some solar panels on some houses. I would like break a lot of solar panels. <laughs> um, and, and like, yeah, so there's a tension between wanting quality services based on skilled labor that creates like durable programs that are high quality and wanting to employ everyone. Well, I, I would even put that a, a little bit differently, which is that, you know, one thing you have to consider about some of these jobs is that like, I mean, if you just like Google right now for like solar panel installer jobs, like those job vacancies exist, right? For whatever reason, to the extent that there are some people who do not have jobs in the United States of America right now, it's not because we are in the depths of a recession and there is no employment to be found in the field of installing solar panels. But like, Beyond the questions of like training, right? Like you would have to teach me how to do that work. Again, we're talking about like who is the unemployed population, right? Like somebody who is disabled because of an on-the-job injury is like probably not going to crawl around on rooftops installing solar panels, right? Like it's not suitable to, to that kind of situation. Um, you know, you could have a rigorous training program for childcare centers. But again, that's just like, that's not where you would want to put like re-entering prisoners, right? Like it's, it, it, it doesn't make sense on, on its face. And in general, I mean, it's, I just think like it's a mistake to conceptualize the country as being in the depths of a tremendous recession in which there's like literally no work around for people. There was a, a story in, in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday about like small towns and the Great Plains that are trying to offer people moving bonuses to like come to town and, and go do manual labor there. So if you start off imagining that the problem is that there's no work at all for anybody out there and so we need a jobs guarantee, you could end up in almost the opposite situation where we're now saying to people, hey, wait, like you're going to lose your Medicaid benefits unless you move to North Dakota and go take this job that's that's available there. When if we really want to help people, I do think we need to think in a more targeted way about like what is their their problem, right? I mean, it, it really does seem to me that we have a significant number of people who face like real barriers to working and they would like those barriers to be overcome. But like you have to actually like work away at that problem. And then as Sarah was saying, on a macroeconomic level, right, like there's just a couple of big policy levers that we have and you can use EITC or wage subsidies or other mechanisms to like make work more remunerative for people who are at the bottom end of the spectrum, which would like give them more money, which is nice and also increase people's attachment to labor force, which is nice. And then, you know, my just like to me, the all-payer rate setting uh, of the jobs guarantee world is like Federal Reserve policy, which like I know nobody likes to talk about on the stump. And I have no problem if Kristen Gillibrand or Bernie Sanders or whatever like wants to call it a jobs guarantee. But the Fed makes policy decisions that drive the level of employment gains in the United States. We've been for the past couple of years slowly raising interest rates and we could just like not do that. We could put more emphasis on 
employment and less emphasis on inflation control. And I think at some point you would like go too far down that road, but I don't think we are at that point. And you know, if I were actually making policy as opposed to making slogans, that's the basket that I'd be putting like the vast majority of my eggs in. And they're just like just regular jobs, you know, working for private employers, but in an economy where there's a lot of demand for work. Whether or not you believe in the like transcendent value of the dignity of work, I think we all would benefit from living in a society where employers were eager to hire lots of people rather than being stingy about it. Yeah, but I think like another layer of this I feel gets a little hand wavy is like what is the government's role and how much are they spending or how much are they doing like to run this kind of jobs guarantee program and like what do one of the things we've seen for example Kentucky is rolling out its Medicaid work requirement in July if it doesn't get held up in the courts and one of the things we're learning there is that it's pretty costly to administer a um, work requirement, which is different from a, from a jobs guarantee, but has some similar factions. Um, Tennessee is cutting back on um, certain SNAP spending in order to try and finance a work requirement because they're going to need these people to make sure that people are working. And I get a little skeptical about that investment on the administrative side of a job requirement in terms of like actually standing up the jobs, making sure that someone who comes into like the job store is able to leave with the job, making sure that person actually gets to their job, that they, you know, are figuring out, I'm guessing some kind of process if you are not performing well at your guaranteed job for dealing with that situation. It seems like there's a lot of infrastructure that would have to exist around building a program like this, not not saying it couldn't be done, but then it kind of comes back to like, well, what's what's the point we're driving at here? Would that money be better spent just given to these people, to other people, to in some kind of universal basic income setup versus administering a program that's going to get jobs that are, for some people, a sense of identity, for some people, just something they do during the day? That's kind of like another big question that runs through my mind of if we have this finite set of money that's going to be used for a job guarantee, is the money best spent on the kind of structures that have to exist to guarantee jobs versus, you know, just spent as money given to people to give them kind of a higher standard of living? I want to sort of return to the point about monetary policy for for a second, if possible, that I, I've heard this point from you, Matt, a bunch of times, and and I agree with it to a large degree. Like, I think the Federal Reserve should, instead of killing jobs, be like trying to create jobs. And given that we've been far below 2% inflation for many years, they should be like letting inflation go a little higher to make up for that. Create the jobs. Create the jobs. My worry is like, they can do that and they haven't been doing that. And I think, I know your answer is just like appoint people who would be good for jobs instead of people who would be bad for jobs. But part of the appeal of a jobs guarantee is that it creates this sort of permanent program, which like in theory, at least eliminates involuntary unemployment, like no matter who's in charge of the government, that like if it, if it's becomes like social security or Medicare and it's sort of politically safe, for, even though sort of Republicans and, and people who initially opposed it come to power in the future, like, it, it, it'll be there and it'll, it'll be a permanent fixture of our politics. Whereas 
you know, maybe Kirsten Gillibrand appoints Matt Iglesias to be Fed chair and and you have this. Thank God. <laughs> America experiences eight years of peace and prosperity. And then you leave and Tom Cotton appoints someone who wants the gold standard back in your place and everything goes to hell. Right. Like. My worry is like how how do you just like change the structure of the Fed so that instead of caring a lot about inflation, they like want people to get jobs? Yeah, I mean, I don't super duper have an answer to that question, and that's why I do not object as much to this jobs guarantee rhetoric as I think a lot of people who have substantively similar opinions to me have, because like I don't have a procedural fix for this problem. And I think that politicians winning an election by saying that they're going to guarantee everybody a job is like a pretty good pre-commitment device to then like appoint strong Federal Reserve officials and go do things. I, I just I, I guess I think that you can't conceive of the labor market as equivalent to a social welfare program where you create it and then you walk away and you say that your work is done. I just think the reality is that labor market policy is an ongoing process. Like the most um, successful type, like reemployment job training programs they have in Europe, they call them active labor market policies. And part of it being active is that it's just like it's an ongoing process. It's a thing you have to do all the time. Just like the military is always like doing stuff. Right, there's like always a new group of soldiers. They're training them. I I don't know what they do in the military, but it, they, they, but they but they but they don't just sit around and be like, "Well, we passed a law in the early '70s, like saying we're going to have a strong national." That's defense. not when it happened. So there, so there we have it. Um, you, you just like the work of macroeconomic management, like it's ongoing and. Like the reason the Great Recession was so deep and so long and so shitty is that like Barack Obama personally did not believe in the power of monetary policy to fix it. And so he did not appoint people. He largely just didn't appoint anyone at all. Some of the people he appointed like thought that Ben Bernanke was too aggressive in fighting the recession. Like it was a huge, huge, huge mistake. And I feel like dialogue around this subject is like weirdly polarized between there's like some people who think Obama was just terrible and everything he did was a mistake. And then there's other people who think he was like a golden god who did nothing wrong. I think he was great. He's got like almost everything right except for totally wrecking the basic management of the economy. And the solution is to not do that. <laughs> You know, just like don't. Because if you look, I mean, when you look at what the jobs guarantee people are nostalgic for, they'll reference FDR and they'll reference the New Deal. And it's true that FDR created some uh, direct employment schemes. He had the WPA. He had the Civilian Conservation Corps. And like that's great. I mean there's, there's something wrong with public sector jobs programs, especially if they do – some useful stuff. But like the other thing he did was he took the United States off the gold standard and the bulk of the job creating was done by that monetary policy mechanism because like the bulk of people work in the private economy and I think like they always will. Like that's just that's just how it is, you know? And particularly if you're trying to generically employ millions and millions of people across diverse circumstances in diverse communities, like the thing the private sector is really good at is just being flexible 
and like having different things going on in different places because you don't need one guy to like write down what the rules are for everything. And like the government can like guarantee is a little bit weird, right? Like if you think about should it be illegal for people to murder each other? Like definitely, right? Like that should be a policy objective. And then you try to think, well, like what is our no murders will happen guarantee policy going to be? And like we don't we don't have one. You know, and I don't know that we can really guarantee that nobody will ever be unemployed, but we can never like try harder. Well, and I think this is where, you know, I'm kind of attracted to Booker's plan, which is the idea like, let's see what the fuck happens if we do this <laughs> in 15 cities. Like, I know it is like more moderate and less exciting and like the Sanders plan would go a lot whole hog. But I think and like Dylan, you can correct me if I'm wrong because you spent more time in this space that it seems like there's a lot we would want to learn about, like, what would happen to wages, what would happen to employment, what would happen to, you know, some of the health indicators you're talking about earlier that we've seen can be tethered to unemployment. If we tested this out in some cities, different cities, would it be different in an urban area versus a rural area? As much as, like, even with all the skepticisms I've expressed here, like, I don't know if something about it works and, like, there is research to be done. It, it That feels like a kind of valid use of some amount of government funds just to see, okay, like what what does this actually look like in the United States if we try something like this? All right. Speaking of experiments, should we pivot course? Talk about Peter Bergman? Yeah. The Bergman. Okay. So here we go. This paper, this research is called The Risks and Benefits of School Integration, Colin, Evidence for a Randomized Desegregation Program. And so School segregation is something people talk about a lot. Um, the question of what you could do to reduce it, I think, is difficult on like a broad scale. But this um, this paper took advantage of a, a small scale desegregation initiative that was relatively easy to implement. And basically, what they did was they took a majority minority school district that was close to a number of higher income white school districts. This is in Palo Alto and, and, and sort of Bay Area. Yeah, in the sort of Silicon Valley area. And so they said, OK, the surrounding richer, whiter school districts are each going to need to take some transfer students from the poor black school district. And they did not take as many students as wanted to apply. So there was a lottery. So you get to compare the students who win the lottery and go to the rich white school to the kids who applied for the lottery but didn't win it and, and stayed at home. And you see uh, pretty encouraging you know, results on academic performance that the kids who, who went to the, the white schools did better in school and they were more likely to go to college. And this effect was driven by uh, attendance at two-year colleges. So it's not like you know, people didn't suddenly become academic superstars, uh, but they did better in school. They stayed in school longer. And evidence suggests that, you know, that will have big lifelong benefits. But then the downside, I guess the, the risks of the title are that they got arrested a lot more. The bulk of that was driven by nonviolent offenses and in particular driving offenses. The cause seemed to be that these students were spending more time out of the place where they typically live, which makes you think, and like, I don't think this is like a shocking conclusion to draw, that because these people were spending more time in these predominantly white areas, they were being pulled over by cops more, that they were being arrested for different kind of driving-related offenses more than they would have been if they had, you know, stayed in their home district and not spent as much time out of it. 
to be clear, I mean, honestly, like calling this the risks of school <laughs> integration, it's a little because you read it at first and you're like, oh, they got arrested more. So you're like, okay, so here, like, oh, they're here's doing the risk, something right? wrong. <laughs> right. So it's like, oh, on nope. the one hand, like some kids are doing better in school, but then like others are getting involved in crime and it's destabilizing. But like, no, the issue is that if you bring black children into affluent suburban white schools, you then have more black kids driving around white suburban neighborhoods, and then they get arrested on nonviolent, I guess like random moving offenses is what it comes down to. So I don't know. It seems bad, but also not like a reason to not do no I mean, school integration program. It seems like a reason for some kind of police training more than like if you're seeing these gains from the integration program. It suggested something separate from the integration program. That it is seems like Palo Alto cops side. should be less racist is what this seems like. <laughs> well, but it's more like, look, you're seeing here the deep social roots of segregation, though, right? That like it could just be that like through some kind of wacky happenstance, there happened to be this like highly segregated residential neighborhoods that were then creating segregated school systems. And then through some tweak to the school intake rules, like we could undo the impact of segregation and would have academic benefits. So like all that is true, right? But then what you see in the arrest patterns is that, you know, people live in segregated neighborhoods in part because of the like underlying house price dynamics, but in part because racial minority groups and particularly African-Americans and particularly African-American men are made to feel unwelcome when they enter predominantly white neighborhoods. And that's bad on its own terms. It's bad in these arrest terms, but it also just – it just underscores like why the segregation happened in the first place, right? There was a story in um, New York City recently. Uh, one of the local newspapers reported on white families on the Upper West Side who were like freaking out about a school boundary change that was going to send more black kids to, to the school that, that their children attended. And the school's chancellor like tweeted this article out with its like clickbaity, appropriately disparaging headline about the white parents. And then the scandal became that he had tweeted the article, not that the white parents were freaking out about school integration. And he was forced to apologize and say that, like, of course he understands that people are concerned about their communities and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, these are probably, like, liberal parents who would say that black lives matter and they don't think the Palo Alto police should be racist and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But it's like, it's like both the desegregation program worked, but also it's undermined by all the same things that are why the schools were segregated in the first place. Yeah. And I think it also, I mean, it suggests, and this is, it suggests what a difficult problem this is going to be to fix. Because if you're just going to look at like educational outcomes, it seems like this was a pretty big success. You got the things you wanted out of it, that academic achievement improved, more people were going to two-year colleges. That seems like a pretty significant shift for a, you know, small period of time. On the other hand, I think what this paper suggests to me is it's going to take more than that to see, like, real gains, like gains that do not come, that are partially offset by more arrests um, happening to students who are participating in these programs. I mean, one of the things I would love to see if there's some enterprising reporter out in Palo Alto, if there's more research on this, is, 
you know, what happens to this program? Is there still a lottery and a waiting list? Is it worth the risk, you know, when parents are thinking through, you know, I, I want my kid to go to this better school, but like I've heard more people get arrested when they go to this school. Like, is it worth Well, and what do the white parents the say? Since I imagine like yeah. if, you, if you had to come up with like a stereotype of a like white liberal but becomes a Klansman when their kid might be going to school with a black person, like Palo Alto parent, like their concern would be like, yeah, all these kids are coming in and yeah, it might be good for them, but they're all going to be criminals and get arrested. And they might look at the study and be like, yeah, <laughs> like, like it's exactly what I predicted. And it's not that at all, but, but it plays into those anxieties from that like class of person. Yeah. I mean, that is why I wish this paper had a different title, <laughs> if anything, um, because it, I mean, it, it suggests that there are risks to the white students possibly, which is like definitely not the case in this study. I've got to say, so an experience that I have had as a as a parent who lives in a neighborhood where the local public school is majority minority is a lot of like kind of weird whispered conversations among parents in the neighborhood about like, ah, oh, you know, you're going to send your kids to Garrison. Like, well, things are changing. You know, like what things? <laughs> what things are changing? <laughs> um you know, and like I, I think we all know what things are changing, uh, which is the demographic composition of the neighborhood is what is changing. But but nobody quite wants to say it explicitly, right? But I mean, this is, I think, like really the the question about these initiatives. Like I I, I think that what you see in this study, I mean, what you see over and over again is that you know, contrary to some some views coming from the right, that like. I don't know, like racial discrimination is a real problem in America on an ongoing basis that does like concrete and relatively easy to recognize harm to people and that like we could and should try to remediate it. But also you look at this, you're like, well, we should we should scale this. We should scale this program up, which they probably should. But also to the extent that the big downside of the program is that like huge public sector agencies in Palo Alto are organized to engage in systematic racial discrimination. That makes it seem unlikely to me that the Palo Alto parents are going to be really interested in kind of scaling this up. And like, I don't I don't know exactly which it's almost like not a policy problem. Right. It's like an actual, like, what are people's opinions in American society problem. Right. And uh, the, the paper mentioned a bunch of studies about what happened in Charlotte, North Carolina, when their desegregation program got canceled like a few years or a decade ago. And, and sure enough, like all the gains get reversed, like uh, academic performance for black students goes down. You, you see a variety of poor social outcomes. And I think that's been much more the trend uh, across the U.S., I, I did think it was interesting to read this paper in light of the failure of Senate Bill 827, which was a, a very ambitious bill in California that would have uh, required municipalities to allow a lot more multifamily homes or four or six story apartments near transit. And it was specifically targeting places like Palo Alto that I think a lot of coverage of the bill focused on San Francisco. but. Places like Palo Alto that are sort of wealthy, white, suburban communities are super aggressive about like not just not letting like poor and black people in, but just not letting apartments in, period. And partly because of that, some of the biggest supporters of, of that bill, there's a big letter from uh, like Richard Rothstein and uh, 
Pat Sharkey at NYU, a bunch of people who study racial segregation and neighborhood segregation all came out in favor of this bill, um, despite the fact that there were a lot of left groups that were against it, saying, you know, the thing that will tear down segregation is if you just let people build homes that people, that poor people and people of color uh, who are, are sort of disproportionately economically disadvantaged can afford to live in in these towns. That bill went down. I know you're, you're optimistic, Matt, about similar legislation succeeding in the future. But I think like that sometimes gets bracketed as a housing debate. And this is a schools debate. But in America, yes. these are the same thing. Well, it's, it's, it's worth saying also, you know, I mean, the California poses some particular political questions around housing. But there's a bill that passed the state assembly in Connecticut and is now pending in the state Senate that essentially poses the same question but in a way that is much more politically aligned with this racial segregation issue. And the Connecticut bill would say that towns cannot ban multifamily housing, um, that they have to allow for some construction of multifamily housing. And this is important in – Connecticut is, is not California in terms of its structure. And Connecticut has just a handful of sort of smallish cities, right? New Haven, Hartford, Bridgeport, Stamford uh, that tend to be um, – have, have very large African-American populations. And then the vast majority of the state is rural or suburban. The vast majority of Connecticut towns completely ban multifamily housing and there is no like luxury construction boom happening in Connecticut um, in either of the small cities. Yeah, I've been to New Haven. Right. No, so just it's it's different, right? Because in, in, in California, like the image of this sort of like lack zoning is dominated by uh, condo conversions in San Francisco and, and West Side Los Angeles, uh, whereas Connecticut really like lays it clear, right? That like the question is, is like, will people be able to throw up a few apartment buildings in all white suburban towns, right? This was very controversial. It passed the assembly extremely narrowly with uniform Republican opposition. Uh, I don't know if it can pass the Senate this term or, or not. But it's a clear case of that is legislation that would let poor people move into rich towns with their fancy segregated schools and would probably make a big difference in, in education. I mean, Beyond the question of would like housing in the aggregate become more affordable, it would give new people access to school districts and that would have uh, some real benefits for them. And it's also possible that if people were actually living in the school districts, they would have somewhat fewer of the policing problems that this kind of paper illustrates. I mean, there's there's an element of racially discriminatory policing being found in this paper, but there's also just the fact that like there's a reason why people normally try to attend school close to themselves rather than um, – you know, driving around everywhere. And so integrating the housing rather than integrating the schools, you know, seems like a, a promising effort. And with that. I think uh, that's Weeds. Yes. Thank you, Dylan, for joining us. Anytime. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. As always, check out the Weeds discussion group on Facebook if you want to uh, continue the conversation. Check out Today Explained if you want just podcasts every day, all day, all the time. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks to our producer, Bridget Armstrong. The Weeds will be back on Friday. 